we're talking about, of course, the uh, this section 40 to 48, that is the blessings for God's people after the judgment, and he depicts this as a temple that Ezekiel sees in a vision, he describes it in detail, now he's describing the temple service, he's describing the worship procedures and, and that sort of thing. The whole idea of this is the idea of God dwelling again with his people and having fellowship with them and uh, being able to be on good terms together again. We've just looked at a lot of regulations about the priests that, that this temple has in this picture. And uh, we see how the land's divided. We see some things about the leader of the, the people, the prince. And now we're going to look at actually some of the worship itself. So, 18 to 25. Thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood from the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the house, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the posts of the gate of the inner court. Thus you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who goes astray or is naive. So you shall make atonement for the house. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread will be eaten. On that day the priest will provide for himself and all the people of the land a bowl for a sin offering. During the seven days of the feast he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven bulls and seven rams without blemish on every day of the seven days and a male goat daily for the for a sin offering he shall provide as a grain offering an ephah with a bull an ephah with a ram and a hin of oil with an ephah in the seventh month on the fifteenth day of the month at the feast he shall provide like this seven days for the sin offering the burnt offering the grain offering and the oil now you see feast days here that are important and that they worship in. Well, which ones? Passover. All right, Passover. From where to where do we have Passover? 21. 21 to... 20, 21, 22, 23. And... 24. Yeah, 21 to 24 is dealing with the Passover. Now, what comes before and after the Passover here? <coughs> well, after is the Day of Atonement. Not the Day of Atonement. Okay, not the Day of Atonement. Close. Seven, seven weeks. The Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, or at least it's at the time of the Feast of Booths. The seventh month and the fifteenth day, the Day of Atonement was... You know that just because you know that's when the Feast of Booths Yes. The tenth month. Right. The tenth yes. day month, of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement. Just, yeah. That's how it Exactly. The, the Feast of Booths was on the fifteenth day of the seventh month and lasted for seven days. So I'm just saying it's at, it's at the same time okay. as the Feast of Booths was. Uh, perhaps it is uh, at least some kind of a parallel to the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, whatever you want to call it. What about from 18 to 20? What kind of a feast do you have? Yeah, kind of a New Year's feast. Um, I don't know that there's anything really parallel to that earlier. Um, there was a kind of a special day at, on the first day of the seventh month in the law. That was the feast of... We don't know our feast, do we? Seventh month, first day. 
No, it wasn't. <laughs> that was the uh, 50 days after the uh, Passover feast. I don't know what other feasts were there. Uh, the trumpets. trumpets. See, you had basically, you know, two main feast cycles in the law. Or, or maybe I should say two main holy day cycles. You had in the spring of the year, you had the Passover with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Day of First Fruits after that, all right together. Then you had 30 day, or 50 days after that, you had the Pentecost. So you've got all that complex right there together in the spring. Then in the fall, in the seventh month, on the first day you've got the Feast of Trumpets, on the tenth day, the Day of Atonement, and then on the fifteenth day and lasting for seven or eight days, depending on how you look at it, you had the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. So that was the fall feasts. You had your spring feasts and your fall feasts in the law. This picks up on three of those, well actually two of them, plus adds this feast of uh, the New Year, New Year Day, New Year's Day feast, I guess we'd say. Does that make some sense as far as just seeing the overall structure of this passage? Now what's he mostly telling us about these feast days? The prince will be providing... As usual, and it talks about what animals will be provided. More or less the the set of sacrifices for each. Wow. That would be me. Asian jingle on her phone. Asian jingle. Yeah. It definitely wakes you up. But they don't. That's kind of on the counter. They don't want it on the counter. They don't. It's all right. I always thought it was just. Oh, okay. We'll just go on without it. Okay. She's my sister. Uh, okay. She's going to transcribe it or listen to it. So. That's right. So anyhow, you've got all these animals that are to be offered on these special feast days. Now there's one other thing that I think is especially important here. We've alluded to it earlier. But in verse 22, you find out the prince does what? Provides the, the bull for, for himself and the people. As a sin offering. It's not Jesus. Doesn't that pretty well prove that? The prince, prince can't be Jesus because Jesus didn't need a sin offering. So I think, I think the prince is not a type of Jesus, or at least is not primarily focused on Jesus. I think the prince is more just the leader of the people. So, but, you know, I, that, that helps me see that, that, that probably we shouldn't so much see Jesus in the prince as just the governmental leader. Was there more than one prince? It, didn't it use prince, princes plural? I think it did somewhere, didn't it? Seems like there is a statement about that somewhere, but don't ask me where. How about... Um, about 45.9 as an example. Probably some other things too. Alright. That would also tell you it wasn't Jesus. One more than one thing. Comments and questions through 25. Was it in verse 19... Was it typical to put the blood on the doorposts of any house other than... I mean, I'm no. thinking the Passover. The Passover. But that wasn't 
that normally didn't happen in the temple. No. On the on the corners of the altar, so yeah, the altar underneath like the altar sometimes. Oh, in different situations, it could be sprinkled even on the veil or, you know, different things. But, yeah, no, I don't think it was ever put on the doorpost uh, of the houses other than, you know, on the people's houses in the Passover. That's all I know about. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I agree. All right, other comments or questions on 45? Well, those are some special annual feast days, but there's more than just that. Chapter 46, verses 1 to 8. Thus says the Lord God, the gate of the inner court facing east shall be shut, the six working the six working days. But it shall be opened on the Sabbath day, and opened on the day of the new moon. The, priest, the prince shall enter by the way of the porch of the gate from outside, and stand by the post of the gate. And the priest shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate, and then go out. But the gate shall not be shut until the evening. The people of the land shall also worship at the doorway of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbath and on the new moon. The burnt offering which the prince shall offer to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering shall be an ephah with, and the grain offering shall be an ephah with the lamb, with the ram, and the grain offering with the lambs, as much as he is able to give, and a hen of oil with an ephah. On the day of the new moon he shall offer a young bull without blemish, also six lambs and a ram which, which shall be without blemish. And he shall provide a grain offering, an ephah with the bull, and an ephah with the ram, and with the lambs as much as he is able, and a hen of oil with an ephah. When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the porch of the gate, and go out by the same way. Okay, that's good. So you have the uh, some, some more frequently recurring days. What two days does he deal with here? Sabbath. Yes. The Sabbath would occur how often? Weekly. And the new moon? Weekly. Yes. So these are more frequently recurring days. Now, on the new moon and on the Sabbath day, the uh, gate of the inner court, the east gate, was to be uh, opened. And um, they were to go in and you know, uh, perform these various uh, things. Um, and he gives uh, specifications as to what's to be done on each of those days. On the Sabbath day, what were they supposed to offer? Inter- what, what were they supposed to offer animal-wise on the Sabbath day? Six lambs and a ram. Six lambs and a ram. What are they supposed to offer animal-wise on a new moon day? So they just add a young bull to the six lambs and a ram of the Sabbath day. Now, in both cases, what are they supposed to add to those offerings? Grain. Grain offerings and oil oil as a drink offering. So often, the grain offering, the drink offering, were offerings that accompanied the animal offerings. It's a very common function. Really, the only function, nearly, of the drink offering. You could offer the grain offering separately, but often it was kind of an accompanying thing. Sort of like, I mean, I think it's almost the idea of, you know, you don't just eat meat. You know, you have some bread and something to drink with it. You know, it's kind of giving the full offering idea. All right, comments and questions on that? What does it mean in verse 5 that he'll give for the grain offering with the lambs? as much as he is able to give? Well, I guess, you know, 
there's no specification as to exactly how much, but you know, it's supposed to get abundant life. Because I'm kind of like going, so you know, you've got an entire grain bin full of <laughs> grain, yeah. so you could give like all of that, but I'm not sure that's what it's, whether that's like a minimum or a maximum that they're talking about, or I'm not real sure. Yeah, I don't have a good answer. Well, what's the point? The point is the worship of God continuing in a regular way. You know, the, the restoration of the fellowship with God, the sacrifices, the This is still names. part of his vision. This is all a part of the vision. It's all, all of 40 to 48 is part so of the vision. So this vision is showing that not only was there this new temple, but the worship is yes. being restored. Yes, yes. Worship, the worship like this symbolizes the communion between man and God. Uh, why is it just the East Gate? Because they could still go in and the other gates were open. I can't tell you. So I, don't I, I don't completely understand some of that stuff. Anyway. Well, was it, is this the same east gate that God went through? Well, I'm thinking it surely must not be in some way because that was not supposed to anybody go through that one. Uh, but I don't know. Let's see here. Uh, significance about the east? Maybe would that be why? Well, the east was the front of the structure. Uh, which verse is it? Okay. The inner court facing east shall be shut. I'm wondering if this gate is a different one being the gate of the inner court as opposed to like the gate going into the temple complex. Hmm. It's kind of what I'm wondering. Because I think, yeah, I mean, this is just... Yeah, because in 44-1, it's the east outer gate that was shut okay. in order to be opened. So there's the outer gate that would be like into the temple complex and then the inner gate that's into like the, you know, courtyard of the temple or whatever. Okay. So the outer gate was permanently shut, but they could go through the inner gate to get into the temple area. On special days. On the Sabbath and new moon. Mark. Um, it's talking about, uh, would the grain give as much as he wants to give? Could that be like um, arguing over means that we send that morning? Sure. That's kind of what we are to do. We're to give as much as we're able. God doesn't really give us an exact amount. Yeah. Back up, what was the last feast in the end of the chapter? Tabernacles or, or, or booths, whichever you want to call it, in 25. At least it's at the very same time. It lasts for the same amount of time. Yeah. And you know that they, I mean, the Sabbath and New Moon, the feasts, those were also in the law. They were to celebrate every week and every month. Alright, other comments and questions through eight. 9 to 15. But when the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by way of the south gate. And he who enters by the way of the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. No one shall return by the way of the gate by which he entered, but shall go straight out. When they go in, the prince shall go in among them, and when they go out, he shall go out. At the feast and the appointed feast, the grain offering shall be an ephah with a bull, and an ephah with a ram, and with the lambs as much as one is able to give, and a hen of oil with an ephah. 
When the prince provides a free will offering, a burnt offering, or peace offerings as a free will offering to the Lord, the gate facing east shall be open for him. He shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he does on the Sabbath. Then he shall go out, and the gate shall be shut after he goes out. And you shall provide a lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning you shall provide it. Also you shall provide a grain offering with its morning, with it morning by morning, a sixth of an ephah, and a third of a hen of oil to moisten the fine flour, a grain offering to the Lord continually by a perpetual ordinance. Thus they shall provide the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil, morning by morning, for a continual burning. All right. Now, you've got this situation as to uh, the um, exits and entrances and what you're supposed to do if you go in one <laughs> gate and how you're supposed to go out and all that. Basic idea of that is what? That's it. Don't go out the same way you came in. And now, why? You're going all the way through. Yes. You're not retreating? Maybe. You're not. Because, I mean, looking at the... You're, you're, going, you're going straight through. The priest... the. The prince comes in and goes out. There is no west gate. Yeah. Is he going in and out the east gate? Yeah, he's going in no, and out the east assuming. gate. Okay. And People are going in and out the north and south gates. Right. Who's going in and out the east gate? The prince. prince. But not the east gate that was shut. Cause nobody the east gate of the inner court. <laughs> <laughs> this is mad. Let me give you a couple of ideas. I don't know if either one of these are true or not. They're just ideas that people present. I thought they were interesting. The first one's kind of mundane, the second one would be more symbolic. Could this just be a crowd control thing? You know, you don't want everybody trying to get out the same door they're coming in. That could be, I mean, you know, kind of smooth the flow. Or could it be symbolic that you should leave worship a different person than the way you came? Oh, I like that better. Mm, I think that's cool, but I don't know if it's true. I like that. Well, I'm glad. I, at least I please your mom, girls. Well, I don't think my I know. You girls have been doing it for a while now, haven't you? Oh! <laughs> that's a day for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I like that. Alright. At least we're right or half. It's better than mundane. Yeah. So, and then you have uh, these offerings that are to be offered, and actually, there are offerings not only, uh, you know, like on the Sabbath day, there are also daily offerings that are to be given. Uh, for example, in, in verse 13, a lamb uh, daily, morning by morning, and grain offering and all that, and uh, so so the offerings were to be be offered continually, just as they were in the uh, under the law. So there's lots of offerings, uh, as worship ought to be, a daily thing. It ought not to be just at special occasions, but every day we ought to worship and give ourselves to God. Comments and questions. I'm wondering with the north south thing again, if maybe part of the idea is that you have to fully enter in. You can't just go a little ways, here you go, and turn around. I mean, the dimensions of the of the temple wouldn't you wouldn't be able to just take two steps and get to where you need to go, but right. but you would the idea of you go completely in and 
to go out the other way, you've had to go come all the way through it. Could be. So there's a third explanation. All right, other thoughts? Would you like to hear the, the millennialist version of all the world this means? Uh, yeah, what does they say? Let's see. Um, if the great festivals of Passover and booths are to be observed during the millennium, there is no reason why sacrifices would not also be offered. Then, of course, they would be memorials of the finished sacrifice of Christ. Yeah. That is a, one of their dodges. They, they have a hard time with the sacrifices if this is going to happen in the millennium with the idea that Jesus had, you know, the last final great sacrifice and the animal sacrifices don't, you know, aren't worth anything anymore. And one of their views is, well, these are just memorials. They're not really sacrifices that provide anything. Some of them are, would argue that these are figurative, <laughs> ironically, uh, because they generally tend to put fun at anybody who says things are figurative, figurative. And some of them really think we're going to revert back. Oh dear. Which is really, that's more the older view. I mean, it's just... Before they had chances to think, think it. They, they, you know, views um, kind of evolve to make it more, them more difficult to attack. We say they're like nuanced, you know, we, we kind of start changing around a little bit to where they're harder to attack. They usually become a little more moderate in that process. And that's what's happened with a lot of the dispensational premillennial views. Today, most premillennialists are not quite as extreme as they were 50 years ago. All right. Anything else through uh, 15? 16 to 18. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. If the prince makes a gift from his inheritance to one of his sons, it will also belong to his descendants. It is to be their property by inheritance. If, however, he makes a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants, the servant may keep it until the year of freedom. Then it will revert to the prince. His inheritance belongs to his sons only. It is theirs. The prince must not take any of the inheritance of the people, driving them off their property. He is to give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people will be separated from his property. Okay, so this deals with the regulations about the prince and his property. What was the prince supposed to do with his property? Yeah, essentially it went down to his sons. Even if he gave it away, say to a slave, what would happen? Do what? Yeah, on the year of Jubilee, it'd go back to them. So that really the prince's property stays in the prince's family. However, what can the prince not do? Take the people's land. Yes. It is, that's such an important thing because it's so easy to exploit the position and take advantage, as you saw happening in the Old Testament. Mark, who's the prince? Like the leader, almost like a king. Yeah, he never really exactly defines the prince here, but he uses him all through this, and he apparently like the government, the governmental leader. Uh, but, but we talked before, you know, about the idea of the tendency in the Old Testament period for the leaders to exploit the land. Uh, for example, in Micah 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it's in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them. 
and houses and take them away, they rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So they would, these leaders would grab territory and houses and whatever they could get a hold of. Uh, like we mentioned before, Ahab tried to do with Naboth's vineyard. Um, so, you know, God's going to make the leaders true leaders. The call to leadership is a call to bless the people you lead, not to take stuff from them because you've got the power to. Comments and questions on that section? Everybody's still writing. <laughs> must have said something good. True leaders bless those they lead. Yes. That's what I wrote. Yes. That's exactly right. Oh, you can tell mine's direct quotes usually. It sounds like Gary. <laughs> Actually, most of think something like that was a direct quote off of somewhere else, you know. Well, you missed something on Jonah, and then the girl said, no, that was Chris's addition to Jonah when he preached the last Oh, what did he say about Jonah? Uh, when you get to chapter 3, is it? And the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, go preach to Nineveh. Chris says, if I'd have been God, it'd have been the word of the Lord came to Justin, Jonah's brother. Preached in it. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah would have been dead. <laughs> the girl said that was dad's edition. I thought. Yeah, it was, yeah, it wasn't mine. Kid Mindy said that doesn't sound like Uncle Gary. No, no. It was his. It sounded good when dad said it. You have to be in the Jonah mindset. But I was looking for that on. I thought of that before we got there on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Sorry. You disappointed me. <laughs> Never heard it before. That's the first. <laughs> Are you going to add it? No. <laughs> I will not plagiarize my brother-in-law. <laughs> Why? He plagiarizes you. Yeah, yeah, well, you know. I have higher standards. <laughs> All right. Are you trying to say something? Mm, I was thinking about it, but you know Okay. <laughs> well, is there anybody who wants He's to continue of a mindset to say something? <laughs> After all this, it's just kind of... More. When does this end? 48. Don't be so eager for the end. So the rest of the book is this vision. Yeah. Yeah. The last nine chapters of Ezekiel are this vision. It's a little odd in my opinion. Well, wasn't in the opinion of the Lord, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's probably more important. When teaching the, the kids on Sunday about Ezekiel, I said Ezekiel was a really, really, really odd person because of all the things he did. I'll have to tell you about that. Yeah, you will. Uh, you told me a little bit, but yes. Tell me a little bit about how you're going to. Other comments or questions? All right, 19 to 24. Then he brought me through the entrance, which is at the side of the gate, into the holy chambers for the priests, which faced north. And behold, there was the place of the extreme rear, rear toward the west. He said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering, and where they shall bake the grain offering, in order that they may not bring them out into the outer court to transmit holiness to the people. Then he brought me out into the outer court and led me across to the four corners of the court. And behold, in every corner of the court there was a small court. Okay. In the four corners of the court there were enclosed courts. 40 cubits long and 30 wide. These four in the corners were the same size. 
There is a row of masonry round about in them, round the four of them, and boiling places were made under the rows round about. Then he said to me, These are the boiling places where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifices of the people. Okay. We are actually seeing a little bit more about the structure of the temple here, and he's particularly showing us rooms for what? Cooking. Cooking. Well, why would you need to cook in the temple? Sacrifices. Yeah, some of the sacrifices are boiled and baked and so forth. <coughs> and so there are places to do that here. So these are just some, you know, kind of rounding out, I guess, the description of the temple and the worship with this, uh, you know, places to, okay. to boil the sacrifices. Um, we'll probably want to leave a little after that. Okay. And that's what I know about that. Do you all have comments or questions about that? We still have that separation of the where the priests do their stuff. Yes. Inside where it's really, really holy and where the others, yes. where the people do their boiling. Yes. Good point. There's a, the, the priests boil their stuff in the northwest corner of the inner court <clears throat> so that the they will not transmit holiness to the people mm -hmm. while the people boil their stuff in the four corners of the outer court. So the people can go in the ones in the four corners. Yeah. Here. Hmm. Mm -hmm. no I didn't catch that. Can they go into the inner court? Oh, wait a minute. The inner court? This is the outer court, right? In 1920, what that's, is that? That's for the priests. Right, but can the people go and into then, the inner court? No. This one is that? Uh, not at all. I don't think so. They go to the doorway. So now I'm trying to figure out, going back from entering the north gate and leaving by the south gate. Yeah. It's not the inner court that you, so you have to go uh, around. You have to go around the. Well, that's a good point. I don't have a good explanation with that. Because that would be the... I don't understand. This, this temple is really strange, yeah. though. Yeah. It probably works out somehow. <laughs> because, I mean, if they can go... If, if they're, they're actually happen. going into the inner court... It's the cobwebs. Yeah, it just happens. I mean, you wanted to. Maybe the people can go into the inner court. Maybe that's what we ought to say. When the people, they enter by the north gate to worship the left by the south gate. And... The gate of the inner court facing east. Hmm. So or, well... Why do we think that the people going in in verse 9 are going in the inner court? I don't know. Maybe this Maybe is the outer court. Maybe it's the outer, the outer court? Yeah. Because yeah. it's not the east gate. So they could go in the north and south gates of the outer court. Yeah. I don't know. I'm yeah. just throwing that out. Go in and... Walk around in front of the east gate of the inner court and hand hand their stuff to the prince and their, 
priest or prince. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. Since he's hanging out there. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, good point. Oh, that's very confusing. <laughs> Aren't you glad we don't have to do this one? Yes. Nobody ever had to really do this. And that may be one reason that the instructions sometimes are a little vague. You know, this is not really meant to be copied and practiced. But someone who understands this better than I do ought to teach it. But we don't have anybody like that. Foggy on this whole thing. It's not my favorite section. No, it's not. But it's in here. It's tedious. Yeah. So is the details of the tabernacle construction. Yeah, but it's it's showing that idea of God being back in fellowship with his people. It's really going into detail on that. Yeah, it is. Like, maybe that emphasizes it more, because I don't know, if you just said, well, God's back in fellowship with his people and they're going to offer sacrifices, the end. That's not, like, I don't know, maybe it has more emphasis because it gets so many chapters. But yeah. you're not supposed to be bored with this. <laughs> 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 yes, I can. And, and this is a priest, remember. This is exciting to a priest. Oh, that's right. I did forget that. Yeah. Just like... Talking Disney to me. Yeah, exactly. Good grief. <laughs> well, see, it was even exciting to see her to try to figure out whether the boiling rooms were in yeah, the corner. And I was like, I don't really care. Right, okay, I did forget that. Sarah is a little more priestly than what you are. <laughs> <laughs> I said nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but I should draw attention to that. <laughs> All right. And everything is in its place, too. Yes. There is a place for everything, and everything is in its place. Yeah. So. Unlike my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> She's not very priestly after all. <laughs> <laughs> She's semi priestly. It's, you know, it's a conceptual thing. That's right. She's a priest in her own mind. <laughs> all right. Anything else you want to say on chapter 46 or unrelated to. It's sad that Megan's not here for chapter 47. It is, because 47 is really cool. If there's anything that's cool here, it's 47. Especially this first section in 47. Which will stagger your imagination, so try to imagine this well as we look at it. Uh, Because you've not ever seen anything quite like this, and probably never ever been anything quite like this. But it's pretty exciting. So, uh, we'll go ahead and read the whole thing so you can get the whole picture. Just try to visualize this. Chapter 47, verses 1 to 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, where the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate, by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. And again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a water, a river that could not be forded. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? 
Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature that swims in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the water goes, where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it. From Engedi to Engleim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary, and their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. All right. So what do you see here? Water. A very strange river. Yeah, it was strange. Uh, one way it was strange is where it began. Somewhere on the south side of the altar. <laughs> yeah. Right there, up there on top of the mountain there by the temple, in the, in the temple complex. You know, and that tells you something. If the water begins at the temple, what does that tell you? It's good water. It's good water. Holy water. It comes from God. Yeah. This is the Lord's provision, the Lord's river. It, it flows from the presence of God. Also, wouldn't be real likely because this is up at the top of a mountain. How is water starting here and growing like this? So this is a, this is a miracle. This is an amazing thing. But at first, when it comes out from the temple, how much water is there? Well, even before that, trickle, trickle. It was a trickle at first. Now, it reminds us that God starts out with very insignificant beginnings. You know, you see that a lot of times. The mustard seed. How big is it? But it grows. The parable of the leaven also shows that. The, the yeast is, there's not very much of it, but it grows. Or a passage like Zechariah 4 in verse 10. Who has despised the day of small things. You know, don't worry about it seeming small. God will grow it. Now, do you get the impression that if I walked around the house, then it would go back to my ankles? <laughs> I don't get that at all. I don't think so. <laughs> I have you walking around the house. Walking around the house? You're walking out from the house. You're walking down the river. Oh, going around it. No, no. No wonder it was you strange. You the way. So I thought on the east side of the house it's ankle deep, and on the south side of the house it's knee deep, and on the... No, no, no. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, I really so straight down? Yes. Straight down. Oh, straight down. 
straight down. Down. Straight down. <laughs> so you're on a mountain, so you're going down. But wow, why did I think that we were walking around? He starts out because he, he, he's led around the, the city. <laughs> the water's actually coming out of the south side, coming down. And then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the gate that faced east. So and he saw water coming out of the south. Okay, I really vision this. You sent a picture of it. So. So it starts out up at the top. Yes. A trickle. And then he measures a thousand whatevers, thousand what cubits. So what is that? Fifteen hundred feet? About a third of a mile or a little less. Third, fourth of a mile, something like that. And he takes another measurement. And then he goes another third of a mile, takes another measurement, and so forth. And uh, what's happening as he uh, as this this river descends? Yes. And quickly, within a mile, it's a raging torrent. And apparently it does this without the benefit of tributaries. It just sort of grows on its own. That's an amazing thing. This reminds me in reverse of something else. <laughs> something remind you of something in reverse? Obviously you're thinking something's getting smaller. Well, sort of, but not exactly. Reminds me of the crossing of the Red Sea. God made a path through the sea dry. Now God's making the stream come out from the mountain. So God can either dry something up or he can, you know, provide extra liquid. Mom doesn't like that one. Okay. <laughs> Not my favorite. Well, it wasn't mine. Uh, so it finally gets to the point where, you know, you have, you have to swim across this thing. It's a huge river. Now, think about um, the symbolism of water and rivers in the Bible. Any passages come readily to mind? Like the Red Sea. Like the Red Sea. And the Jordan. And the Jordan. River of life, but that's later on. Yes. 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 Water is a good thing. Sometimes. God is good at what? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not all of those were relevant to what I was thinking about. <laughs> I would start with the first mention of water uh, in river form. Which was what? Yeah, and the other two, the, what was it, Hakobo? In the Pihon? Pishon. Pishon, okay. I don't know. All right, whatever, those ones there around the Garden of Eden, as God provided for it. And then I'd turn to some other passages that I think are relevant, uh, like Psalm 46 and verse uh, 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. And uh, in Psalm 65 and verse 9, you visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. And so forth. Uh, so you've got the idea of the river or the water is representing God's blessings for his people. And that just continues through the prophets in uh, Joel chapter 3 and uh, in verse 18. You have, in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. 
and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. The spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. So it's the idea of the blessings of God, the water that comes out from the house of the Lord here to water the valley. Um, Zechariah. Zechariah 13 and verse 1, a fountain will be opened for purification in 13.1. And in 14.8, in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, now the other half toward the western sea. Uh, so again, the blessings of God. Um, but when you come to the New Testament, we have some very significant water statements. Um, I'm thinking particularly about Jesus' statements about water. What do you think of? Living water. Yes, what about John 4 as a good place to start? And also, very significantly, John 7. I think this is a very helpful passage to compare. In John 7, 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. We drink of God's water, and then we become a source of water to refresh and heal others. So the water we take in, we, we disperse. Uh, really, that's a great passage in John. There's really three stages. First you're thirsty, then you come and drink, and then from you flows the water to provide for the needs of others. But again, the water symbolizing the connection with God, or the blessings of God, or whatever. And finally, in Revelation 22, and verse 2, that on either side of, of well, 1 and 2, these, there's the river, the water of life, and uh, you see... Uh, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, which reminds you a lot of this passage back in Ezekiel. So, the idea of this river growing so rapidly is the idea of God giving his blessings to the point where they're just overwhelming to us. That's what I've got to say about chapter 47, verses 1 to 5. You have additional comments and questions through there. Um, in 6 to 8 what does he see when he comes back and looks at the river the trees on each side of the river Um, and he sees where the water ends up going where does the water end up going toward the east toward the east and then to the river and toward the sea yes um, the sea there that would be toward the east of Jerusalem, toward the Arabah, which would be what sea? Nope. I think so. The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. Because when the water comes into the sea, what happens? It becomes fresh. Remember what the water of the Dead Sea was like? It was dead. Yeah. So it freshens That would be even more impressive. Exactly. If he made the Dead Sea like that. That's what we're saying. That's what he does. Oh. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's yeah. I think that's the idea. But where's Araba? The Araba is, is toward the south. Okay. So, it's kind of south and east of Jerusalem is the Dead Sea. I think that's what he's saying. Particularly when he says that the waters of the sea become fresh. 
They were not fresh water. But through God's blessing, they become that way. And in fact, this formerly Dead Sea becomes what? Alive. With? Everything. Including? Fish. How many? Tons. Very many fish. Very many fish. Um, and uh, fishermen go there and spread their na- nets. And uh, there's lots of fish, many kinds but not everything is fresh water. You've still got the swamps and the marshes around the sea, and they're still left salty because you need some salt too. So God's thought of everything. And uh, <laughs> what grows on the banks of this uh, river? Trees. Yes. And what do they serve for? Food. Yeah. What part? Yeah. What parts for the food? Fruit. The fruit, and what parts for the healing? Leaves. The leaves. So you see just the tremendous healing power of God's blessings, of God's water, as God uh, takes dead people and makes them alive, so to speak. It's an amazing thing. It becomes a fisherman's paradise. As the places where God has blessed, they become alive, and they become a source of blessing and healing for others. And I would go right back to John 7.38. The believer becomes a source of blessing to those around him. So, you know, from the water springs the healing trees that bless the nation. Nations. So, this is, this is really an amazing feature of this description. As he describes the land itself, this ever-growing and deepening river... That, that has the trees for healing and for food and, uh, and that uh, brings new life to the Dead Sea. Yes, Alan. Where is that, which of the Gospels is that where he said fish on the other side of the boat? Luke 5. Luke 5. That just kind of remind me of that. Mm-hmm. Very curious. Yeah, that's Luke 5. About verse 4 or 5 or 6 or somewhere to there. Other comments and questions? Okay. So that's a cool feature of this. I, I like mm-hmm. it. <clears throat> that's really cool. <laughs> Convi- I'm not am I convinced? Are <laughs> uh, you? Do you like this? I mean, you've never seen a river quite like this before. That's right, you. Yeah. We have moved obviously into the section dealing more with the land itself, and that's what we're going to continue. Maybe the most outstanding feature of the land is this river, but there are other things that we need to look at as well. Thirteen to twenty. This is the. Lord God, these are the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. He shall inherit it equal, equally with one another, for I raise my hands and an oath to give it to your fathers. And this, this land shall fall, fall to you as your inheritance. This shall be 
the border of the land um, on the north from from the Great Sea by the road of... And you will find out that you selected a wonderful passage to read from here on out. <laughs> so you can uh, read them or you can skip over them, whichever you like. <laughs> but you got the northern boundary in 1516 and you can read 17. Read 17. <laughs> read 17 now. I'll let you can skip the names. But. This the this the boundary shall be from the sea of yeah somewhere. <laughs> the border. That's the border Damascus. To me. Damascus. Damascus. And and as for the north, northward. It is the border of Hamath. This is the north, the north side. Okay, and then you can read most of it. Eighteen. <laughs> on the on the east side, you shall mark out the border from between he some Iran and Damascus, and between Gilead, the land of Israel along the Jordan and along the east eastern side of the sea. This is the east side. And then in 19 you got the south side with a few unpronounceable names. And on 20 you've got the west side, which is mostly the Mediterranean Sea. So that's the section. What we're doing is doing what? Besides reading names we can't read. A survey. A survey of the land. Basically surveying for what? <coughs> yeah, the overall boundaries of the land. That's what we're looking at. What? Where is the land? You know, and if you, I don't know how carefully you're able to, you know, get much handle on that. But this land is basically the basic land of Israel on the left-hand side of the Jordan for the most part. Um... This is this is does not include like the Edom Edomite and Aramean territory that David had controlled. In fact, there's a lot of territory that David had controlled that would not be in this land. This is basically the land of Canaan itself. That's the land that God is going to give to them. What does this remind you of? What other book in the Bible? Joshua, maybe? Joshua, yeah. Where they did that. <laughs> kind of circumscribed the land and divided it up among the tribes. And we find that to be fascinating reading in Joshua, don't we? Fortunately, this doesn't go on quite that long. But it gives you the general gist of this. Eventually, we are going to divide this up. But first, we've got to figure out where the territory itself is. How does that connect to the well, we're just looking at the land. So we're looking at the river, and we're looking at the boundaries of the land, and we're going to eventually divide the land up among the tribes. All right, comments and questions about that? By the way, in uh, 13 and 14, what do you find about the, uh, the division of the tribes? There's 12. There's 12, and... 
Joseph gets a double portion. Well, yeah, what was the deal about Joseph getting a double portion? Yes. Why did he get the double portion? He was the oldest son of the favored wife. So he got the firstborn's part. You you always divided the land into one more segments than there were people, and you gave the first one, the oldest one, the two. Yes. Well, but Manasseh, that was really just considered half of them here and half of them here. And in this land, you don't have that land on the right-hand side of the Jordan. So we're not going to have that problem here. So Joseph becomes like the first four. Yes, he does. Very much so. Do you know that passage in First Chronicles 5? This is the classic text on that. Hmm. I think there'd be anything classic about the first few chapters of First Chronicles, do you? I was going to say, I seem to recall just reading it. First so. Chronicles 5.1, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers... And from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So Judah is the one that the blessing passes through. He becomes the spiritual leader. But Joseph is the birthright guy who has the double portion. Each of his sons is counted as an equal tribe with the other sons of Jacob. That's cool. Yeah, did you not know about that verse? Yeah. Cool. Even though I'm pretty sure I've read it recently. I understand. Sometimes <laughs> verses don't stand out to you, especially in the middle of a genealogy. But those two really do help. That kind of summarizes that whole situation. Comments and questions? All right. Um, back to uh, Ezekiel 47, 21 to 23. So you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves and among the aliens who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. And they shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And in the tribe with which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Okay, so we are going to divide up this land. We'll see a lot more about that in the next chapter. Uh, but God wants things to be properly divided. He doesn't want any tribes discriminated against. And furthermore, who does he else does he not want discriminated against? Border. Yes. The permanent alien kind of folks. Even they can hold land and should be allotted land. Um, it amazes me, but there is just a lot of this in the Old Testament. Special laws... Really favoring and encouraging good attitudes toward the alien. That just seems bizarre because they're supposed to get rid of them. Yes, I know. And yet, they brought some with them out of Egypt and they were supposed to treat them well. I think the difference is they were supposed to exterminate the aliens in the land, the Canaanites. But other aliens, they were supposed to treat well. Really, Israel was supposed to be a missionary nation. They were supposed to actually extend out and try to influence those in other nations. And God always makes the point, often make the, makes the point, when he tells them to be kind to the alien, what's the reason he keeps giving? Because you sojourned in Egypt. You were! You know, think about it. They were aliens. They already went through it. You know how people are. 
typically, not always, but but if if you take somebody who's gone through something difficult and humiliating, how do they usually treat the people? And then they've 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 overcome it. How do they usually t- treat the people who are still going through it, or going through it then? I think typically bad. That shouldn't be, but I think that's often the case. You know, um, somebody who uh, oh has been picked on a lot and rejected a lot will often do the same thing to anybody beneath them. You know, kids in a pecking order in a family. They've been mistreated by their older siblings, and they turn around and do the same thing to their younger siblings, etc. I, I think I think it's typical that instead of showing compassion, you know, for what we've suffered, it's easy for us to ju- do just the opposite, to uh, you know, be harsh. He wanted them to think about, look at what you suffered. Don't you treat the aliens that way among you? Give them a special place. I really suspect God would say the same thing to us as a nation. <laughs> because almost all of us were aliens. <laughs> There's not hardly a Native American among us anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> I think I think it, it's kind of ironic how we come from other places and we come here and then suddenly we become super patriots and we don't want to treat others coming the way we <laughs> were treated and want to be treated. So that's kind of what he's saying to them. But it is kind of ironic because we imagine, I think if, if we were just to uh, say what we really imagine is, we imagine that God wanted them to be mean to the aliens. But that's really not the case. Not to be influenced by the Canaanites, but the alien who was willing to be with them and worship with them and so forth, he wanted them to be treated well. I was going to say that these are not just any aliens, these are the aliens who stay in your midst, right. who bring forth sons in your midst, basically those who have made it their permanent place and are hanging out with them and, like you said, worshipping among them. Yes. Yes, perhaps. Yeah, or could become that at least. Oh. I have trouble seeing how this could be interpreted literally if they're to be with the aliens, like if there's some new earth and like the only spot God chooses to have his people exist is in one spot of that new, I suppose, new earth. I don't get how they can reason with this. It just seems... Yes. Um, Would there even be any aliens? They think there will be. Some of them do think there will be. There'll be some non-Jews or non-Christians or whatever. They have a hard time with all this. Uh, including trying to interpret some of these things literally. Trying to interpret that, that river literally is really kind of bizarre. And, you know, so forth. But yeah, some of them do think that there will be there will be the peoples. There will be non-believing you know, nations. That just doesn't make any sense. Really. I mean, wouldn't God just be all unified, I guess? It just doesn't make any sense how... I don't know. It just confuses me. Yeah. I understand. False doctrine does that sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not going to try to defend their uh, wrong views. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm so. glad you're not. <laughs> There's a lot of things about it that I think are, are very incorrect. Mm-hmm. But good question. Other questions are coming. Yes, that is still after you. 
Phil, I already told him no. Well, I think you did it to have uh, handled They'll give you a job if you come see him, maybe while you attend FC, they said. Uh, they needed to have uh, handled some things differently in the initial interview. Yeah, that might have helped. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. What are you giving me a better impression the bikinis? Yeah, well, they just didn't listen. You know, it's like they already had their spiel and don't yeah. mess us up with who you are. But Kyle's not too impressed with USF and yeah, his dealings with them for the graduate program either. He said they're really disorganized. So. Hmm. Anyhow, other comments and questions on 47. All right, I'm going to leave 48 for our uh, time oh. in uh, June. <laughs> After all, I haven't really done 48 yet myself.